Welcome to the show, folks. I am David Hansen. Today we have the second part of our interview with Bruce Greenwald. Hope you enjoy the interview. If they could get away with charging to participate in Facebook, and it's harder to displace people from Facebook, although it may not be, than it was from MySpace, that could be a very valuable network-based, network economies of scale-based mm-hmm. uh, don't you think there's system. potentially something more valuable that Facebook's getting in its data flow than Google is? Or do you think it's essentially all the same data that they're getting at this point? It's, I think it's worse data mm-hmm. because they're not getting purchase data mm-hmm. and they're not getting specific search data. They're getting personal data. They're getting personal data. I mean, you know, maybe they'll be the biggest dating site in the world, but I think mm-hmm. even uh, mm-hmm. the dating sites that are more focused are going to do better. What than about that. LinkedIn? I think you got a lot of graduate students from Columbia probably using that. Everybody uses LinkedIn, and I think again, it is an issue of monetizing the network effects. Now, if image advertising works, I think on the web because it's not like sitting back and having the images wash over you like television and glossy magazines and so on. It will work on a specialized basis. Mm. To the extent that LinkedIn is more specialized than Facebook. I think its future in that ad space is a more promising future. But again, the problem with all these things is you and I are sitting here talking about them. We don't know squat. But you can get as those. This you, but, but you can get really great returns as you're as you're essentially investing in the slightly unproven Starbucks rather than the everyone knows Starbucks has a dominant franchise. Yeah, but I, I, it depends if. Starbucks turns into Starbucks. No, I, but and the evidence right. is that most that's, Starbucks don't. This is why we <laughs> diversify, though, right? I know, but it's it's not. Look, I would say it was, it would be on a, the value end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. We know that two thirds of those stocks don't perform, mm-hmm. but the ones that do perform perform so well mm-hmm. that they dominate, and that's why the value portfolios do mm-hmm. so well. Mm-hmm. On the growth end of the spectrum, the same thing is probably true. But they're so heavily priced that the ones that do perform do not produce the seven, eight, ten time returns that they do when they're beaten down. I'm going to challenge this for the fun of it. I like this conversation here. Um, This is how I'd like to do it. I would like to give you some elements of my investment approach. Okay. And you tell me, I love that, I hate that, or I want to modify it. Okay, absolutely. Okay, so here's the first one. The portfolio that I manage on The Motley Fool, I will not sell. I am restricted from selling any investment that I make within five years. You love that, you hate that, or you would modify it in some way. No matter whether it's a winner or a loser, I own it for five plus years with my own money and as a recommendation to everyone in the community, I believe that that's the smartest thing they could do as investors as well as to lock themselves into can we talk, a okay, can we year. Can we talk about you versus your investors? Sure. Okay. If you're a good disciplined investor, that is, you've got, you know who Seth Klarman is, mm-hmm, right? Of course, okay. yeah, yeah. You're a dispassionate, you know, careful machine. You're sensitive to risk. I'm assuming you have all these characteristics, Tom. <laughs> Why constrain yourself artificially? Sometimes things will go through the roof after two years mm-hmm. and you don't want to sit there while they go back down yeah. for the next three. So yeah. if you are a good disciplined investor, yeah. that is not a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Most investors are not good disciplined investors, so that is a smart so thing to do. So it's a good teaching tool. It's not a teaching tool. Again, character rules in investing. Mm-hmm. Smart helps, mm-hmm. but discipline and resistance to the mm-hmm. 
lure of the crowd and the So in a world where, where the average retail investor, and I would say many professional investors, yeah. are transacting way too frequently, yes, that's that a, discipline that, of locking in the five-year, it may hinder somebody who already has that dispassionate right, exactly. approach. But for those who don't, it's a good... It's, it's, it is the right thing to do. Okay, great. Number two, I love to find founder-led companies for this reason. I, I believe that somebody who's going to bed at night and waking up the next morning, seeing this as their only asset, but I think Buffett has said the only family asset that they'll manage for decades. Um, why have, obviously there are some frauds, fraudulent leaders, and there are some incompetent leaders, but look at the success story of companies like Jeff Bezos and Howard Schultz and Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, the Google guys that you were hammering, Steve Jobs, who was there and created so much value when he was CEO. How, there's okay. such an extra, Mark Zuckerberg, there's such an extra John Mackey at Whole Foods boost that you get from the founder. Obviously, you're going to have some bad ones, and you're going to have some you have some fraudulent ones using it as a piggy bank. But but if you get somebody who's banking their whole reputation, mastering this okay, in a Malcolm okay, Gladwell-like okay. way, I've okay, made my okay. point. Go. This is just <laughs> flat out dangerous. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> there is a statistical bias here. Mm -hmm. The reason you know of all those people is that they were in companies that succeeded. Mm -hmm and they succeeded for economic reasons. But I'm only saying- No, I'm not, okay, we're not, good, we're not okay, done yet. Good, 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 I'll wait. There are lots <laughs> of companies and all you have to do is go back to Japan in the late 1980s and you know, through sort of the bust in, I guess, late 89. Go back to the tech and technology boom where you would have had founders that looked exactly like that. Mm -hmm. And most of them got wiped out. You cannot generalize by looking at the success stories okay. and say, I'm going to extrapolate from okay. those. And I've taken this position. Watch out for Amazon. Okay, got it. Got it. But tell me why you say that. Oh, okay. So let's start with the fact that- <laughs> By the way, I'm going to look at my clock because I know you have to leave by when? I have to leave probably by 4.30. Got it. So we have 45 more minutes right, of this. Okay. You tell me when you have to leave. Okay. We'll just- There has never in the history of, I think, stocks, been a company that did as badly in terms of profits as Amazon has Perhaps done. Perhaps by design, though, all the way through. Well, I mean, but Bezos that, has said, your margin is my opportunity. Right. So, so he may, I mean, the reinvestment rates, right? I think Buffett has called Bezos one of his favorite all-time CEOs, and he's basically saying, it doesn't matter to me to show profits to the investment community. That's not what I'm doing here in the next year or three years or five years. I'm looking 25 years forward, almost in a Jim Senegal or Costco way. Although obviously they were- They, they made money they from made the money. beginning. They have a membership model. They made, Google but, says that, you know, Brennan Page don't care about profits. They mm -hmm. wanna, you know, do well, mm -hmm. but they have made a ton of profit along the way. Mm -hmm. it, that attitude is not what makes a company successful. Again, there is this huge selection bias in the people you're looking at, hmm. that they were in the right place. And I'll give you the example where two of your stars went head to head, mm -hmm. and the person with the top economic position just slaughtered the person with the creative mm -hmm. advantage. Both founders. Both founders, okay, yeah. and it is, of course, but if I get, okay, get Steve Jobs against Bill Gates. Yeah. Apple is a disaster until he uses Intel chips, and he supports Microsoft in 2004. Their share of the personal computer industry is straight down. Mm -hmm. Until 2000. Gates is gone at that point, though. No, no, it's but it died, died, no, no, but trust me, they started losing way before that. Mm -hmm. If you look at the history of Apple up to that point, Adobe with a focused software strategy makes much more total profit than Apple. Mm -hmm. 
That's a classic case where you've got a Gates and you've got a Steve Jobs. And now, Steve Jobs is the first mover. Yep. Steve Jobs is, I think, of those two, you'd have to say, based on subsequent record, the more creative. Mm -hmm. And Bill Gates and his company wind up slaughtering him. And that's because focus matters, dominating small markets matters. Mm -hmm. And he was in a stronger economic position that he understood better. Now, here's where you might agree, which is that, hey, if you make a bet on a number, and, and uh, my approach to see searching for companies. So uh, we're not going to get to the end point of my factors, which caused me to actually say, okay, I am going with these investors, with this company. But what I, but if you get into the category of founder-run companies with a long-term time horizon, and you end up with Microsoft and Apple in there beating each other up, look at the net returns of those companies. I know that you uh, yeah, other no, 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 but that, You'll have other mistakes. No, 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 no. It's not, <laughs> let's just go back to the point at which we disagreed about Microsoft, which is if you bought Microsoft in 2000, when it was trading at 70 times earnings, yeah, right. you got slaughtered. Yeah, yeah. So again, there are two things going on here. One is this, and there are other, if you bought AOL at that time, mm -hmm. you really got slaughtered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, Steve Case yeah. is a visionary. He's one of your guys. He had a <laughs> long identification. It was incredible stock from 1994 to 2000. Absolutely. It was up about 150 but, but, but times look, in value. The only stocks you're ever going to see are those kinds of stocks. That's why there's this selection bias. But the thing is. And the question is, which are the ones that have sustainable economic positions? Hmm. And which are the ones that don't? Hmm. But, and the ones that survive, guess what? They're the ones with the sustainable economic positions. Part of it is but all the ones that disappeared and we no longer yeah. hear from. But you know the part the are many more num in number I'm than taking, the ones we're talking I'm about. I'm taking a, maybe an even more extreme view of this than I than I do in my approach and it's really more my brother's view and he should be sitting here asking these questions cuz he'll be much more articulate about them than I am. But da I would say the David's view <sighs> is Listen, false no false modesty. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I would say the David's it. view or I observe David's returns are he doesn't uh, impairment of per permanent impairment of capital. That's going to happen almost in a venture capitalist mentality. There're going to be a certain ones that just fall away and end up as losers. But Dave bought Amazon a little bit after the IPO and that stock is up 100 times in value for him since. So that that can What do you think Amazon is up since 2000? Early 2000. I'm going to say that since early 2000, Amazon has has maybe gone up two and a half times. It's flat. I thought it was a huge spike. No, no, there's okay. a huge spike. Yeah. Yeah. And it's basically flat. Same with Microsoft, though. I mean, I, I know, I was, of course, yeah, of course. So, so valuation does matter with growth. Of course it does. Companies. And when you finally decide, and I think, look, I'll give you a promise. If I'm still alive, I'll come back here 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. And what do you, I'll bet you a Motley Fool hat, which Perfect. are the greatest hats in the Loser world. Loser shaves their head. Right. No, no, I'm not shaving my head. <laughs> oh, oh, oh you won't one. put that type of risk up. <laughs> well, you don't have a lot at stake on that one. But you think of something you want that I can provide that's, you know, as creative that's and valuable as a Motley Fool hat. And if Amazon is up by 10% a year or more, you'll win. And if Amazon is up by, or let's say it's outperforms it's the market, I'm not, even, I'm not even invested in Amazon, so I'm not the person to stand and defend Amazon. I would say that I think over the next 10 years, um, Amazon is likely to beat the market. Okay, I'll take that. Whatever the market return is. I'll I, take that. Yeah, yeah. Great, that's a great one. Uh, <laughs> let's bet one company at a time. Okay, one or two more factors, and then I want to give some sell factors for me and my approach after the five years. Okay. And hear what you think about those. So one or two more um, factors. Um, I like, I love to find a business 
with a highly rated, essentially a highly rated culture. It's very difficult to find those numbers, although it's getting easier as you have sites like Glassdoor. I don't know if you've actually ever heard of that site, but it's past and present employees review their employer. My belief is if you look at the best places to work lists like Fortune Magazine, there are some things that I would question about how that list is assembled. But culture is a long-term driver of value. Oh, Peter Drucker it? said, is culture it? beats strategy. Okay, so let's- So uh, culture is the greatest strategy right. of all. And if you find a place that is run by the founder that has uh, above average growth rates, and I would particularly focus on sales. You look at Amazon and Whole, I mean, you could Starbucks and Whole Foods, their sales growth rates have outperformed their investment returns and their sales growth rates have been north of 25, 20 to 25% a year since they came public 20 years ago. So if I find huge consumer demand, Founder run, people love to work at that business and they have high rates of return on capital. I'm not going to pay anything for them. I, then I'm going to apply my valuation methodology. But I think that that zone of companies, those franchise businesses are at a real advantage for investors. Okay. Take me down. Okay. Let's <laughs> let, look. There is so much going on in that statement. It's like saying, I'm going to look at everything good. Yeah, okay, and good. then I'm going to buy it for a low price. Yeah, well, I, well I, there I, are limited opportunities to do that, and you better understand when those opportunities yes, are available. Yeah, excellent. Or you're going to get slaughtered. Well, I love this. So case. why don't? So let's That's not. Great. Let's step back from that. Great. And let's be a little more discriminating about what are the good things. So culture is so important, right? It's not an isolated factor. No, no, but it's, culture is. I look. I think that operational efficiency. That is, and I don't mean just cost cutting, but mm -hmm. really running companies well is an enormous factor and it varies a lot across companies. Mm -hmm. And economists assume that, of course, they all maximize. Mm -hmm. So it not, ought not to be a factor. Mm -hmm. Ask yourself, though, are those cultures persistent or do they change to a surprising degree mm -hmm. in particular periods of time? Mm -hmm. And I think the latest example of this has to be General Electric, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Terrific culture. Mm -hmm. goes, travels across industries, whereas most of these cultures are mm -hmm. very industry specific mm -hmm. because that's what you dominate. And 20 years ago, you wouldn't have argued about that. Mm -hmm. How does it look in terms of its investment in financial markets? Mm -hmm. Not great. Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when you talk about culture, you have to look about industry focus. Mm -hmm. For good places to work, trust me, companies that have embedded high profitability, of course, better places to work mm -hmm. than companies that are in environments that are relentlessly competitive. Mm -hmm. So which is it? Is it the culture that creates the profitability or is it the economic position and the profitability that creates the culture? You could argue me either way. I would say that I, I, I sense that you're, of course, saying that the, profit, yes, the economic of dynamics of that business right. create a great work. Because I think one of the things that you see about this issue of culture is focused firms do much better than unfocused firms. Mm -hmm. Xbox is not a hugely profitable mm -hmm. undertaking. Mm -hmm. If Microsoft, you know, Microsoft has a lot of smart people, but they don't do well on Xbox. Mm -hmm. So here's, here's, it doesn't have to be a bet we'll make, just one that we'll follow together. Um, I've invested in recommended MasterCard. I have not invested in recommended Visa. They're very similar, obviously. They have similar dynamics to their business. Visa has more exposure to debit cards, which can be regulated more, more successfully, um, and that can hurt Visa. But here's a big distinguishing factor between the companies. Glassdoor, you, when you look at the size of the sample of the employees that have rated those two companies, it's significant. 
and MasterCard is vastly superior as a culture to work for, and their CEO people is very prefer, highly right, rated. Right, and people Visa like is, to work for MasterCard. Yeah. But what is Visa well known for relative to MasterCard? Cost management. Mm -hmm. They are much more careful about managing costs. Mm -hmm. There gets to be any kind of adverse development in that industry. Do you want the guys who are going to take care of the workers first? Or Such a great question, Bruce. That's a really great question because I would look at like Costco versus Walmart and I would say, which one do I think has better long-term sustainability? The one that knows how to manage costs internally or the one that gets people excited to come to work? And I do want to... <laughs> okay, let's stop, let's stop there. I mean, when you go to Costco, have you ever encountered anyone in Costco that's anything but incredibly helpful? And that makes me feel better as a stakeholding customer of that business about going back and shopping there. I, just be really careful about that one. Because <laughs> okay. first of all, the we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that in retail, the structural economics of density, which is local regional dominance, completely wipes out everything else. Does the Walmart culture work where they're not dense? Germany, Korea, Japan, China, is that a profitable culture in those environments? Mm -hmm. Don't be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Does it even work where Target has the density out on the West Coast? Not particularly well. Mm -hmm. Where does it really, where does the profitability come from? The regions they dominate. Mm -hmm. So it's local economies of scale that matter. I have a new bet I think we should make, Walmart versus Amazon over the next 10 years. You're basically certain that Walmart will outperform Amazon. Oh yeah, I'd do that years. one, I'd do that <laughs> one. <laughs> okay, uh, I want to give some sell, some sell methodology and hear what you think of these. I, I've enjoyed all your responses. It sounds like you are unanimously in agreement with me. Right, of course. <laughs> okay, on the sell side, um, too big to succeed. That there is, even with Google's great economic dynamics of their business, there could be Justice Department issues. They're, they're diff more difficult to manage that business with 50,000 employees than it was with 5,000 or 500 employees. Um, there are uh, a whole host of competitors that are picking through all their financial statements, looking for opportunities in places that they could dive into that business. Although it's tough to disrupt that, I do agree. But, but overall, and finally, in order to become a $1.2 trillion company, you, the, the size of your market opportunity it is massive with Google, but are you, do, you, do we really foresee it becoming a $2 trillion company? In other words, if I want to see my investment... Again, it depends how far out you want to look. Mm -hmm. uh, you see, when you say too big to succeed, mm -hmm. I think in very different terms. I think too diversified to succeed. Mm -hmm. That Let's talk about the restaurant companies because there's a pattern there that really, except at the low end, describes too big to succeed. Okay, great they dominate a local market. Now, a restaurant company has high turnover, mm -hmm. low paid labor, big quality issues, and uh, issues of sort of advertising and promotion. Mm -hmm. What that means is that if you are local and dominate a locality and you got a lot of restaurants in that locality, you leverage your management and they don't spend a lot of time traveling. Mm -hmm. You leverage your advertising because it's only in that locality. You leverage your sourcing, your business sourcing, and any centralized functions that you can do. Mm -hmm. And typically all these chains start as local chains and then they go national. Mm -hmm. And the stock price goes way up and then they crash and burn. Mm -hmm. Now, the simpler the model is, so at the lower end, you can go even like McDonald's, mm -hmm. you can go international and you can for foods, which is home prepared, you do even better mm -hmm. going globally. Mm -hmm. But focus is a 
big advantage, especially the more complicated the industries get and the more high-end you get. Mm. Okay. So I think that when you talk about too big uh, to do well, mm -hmm. I think if you look at companies that have stayed in their niches mm -hmm. and dominated those niches, the niches have become quite large mm -hmm. and they've continued to do extremely well. Mm -hmm. When companies have grown by sort of extending too far the definition, like Walmart, going global mm -hmm. of what they are, they do badly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, excellent points. Um, second factor I look for when, when looking to sell is when the CEO is left. A, a leader that I believe in, a leader that has run the business, a leadership su succession. Look at Starbucks as, a, as an incredibly great investment under Howard Schultz. And then when he steps away, a lot of their discipline and their principles fall. At last we're going to agree, but we're going to agree for a different reason. Okay, good. Okay. If you were a CEO like Howard Schultz, when would you think of stepping away? When the machine is moving and you know hitting on all cylinders, or when the cracks have started to appear? And I'm not saying you make this decision consciously, hmm. but think about somebody who really knows the business and has grown up with the business and is going to be incredibly sensitively attuned to changes a in really the operator of, of that I would say business. that my answer to that question may not be the same as yours, but I think we actually I, we agree. come to the same thing. That's right. I think when they when when they step aside, when they sell stock to other people, when they otherwise uh, give up their stake in the company, you really want to watch out. Mm -hmm. And and an, an observation that I've had that I think dovetails with that is that oftentimes when a CEO is leaving, they're going to dress their they're going to try and squeeze every yes, little, that, but it may look, you're right, the cracks are beginning to show. It's polished and looking beautiful. You see, I think that you actually have, in, it's interesting, in that sense, you have a more cynical view of the CEOs. I have a much stronger belief in the power of self-deception. Mm -hmm. I think that they sense where the cracks are. They're not always fully conscious of when the cracks are, but you know, unconsciously their mindset changes. They say, oh, well, I'm not going to put so much into the company anymore and I'm going to work on you know a more fully rounded life or whatever and that is in part driven by these unconscious perceptions of how the company What do you think started. of Elon Musk and Tesla? Do, do you follow that business at all? Or oh not? don't be ridiculous of course not. <laughs> Come on. Because I mean he, he's, he's he obviously he was the founder of PayPal. Right. He's created three two public companies Solar City and Tesla that have done very well. Uh, SpaceX is a private business. Tesla's market cap is you know, somewhere around $20 billion. How I much, presume how much, you think it's absurd. I, look, it is conceivable that, you know, he in all the world is a genius at many things. Hmm. That is a possibility. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs did a lot of things. Pixar. Extremely well. Hmm. But it's not common. It's not common. So if you were ex-ante betting on this, mm -hmm you'd be really careful. It's mm -hmm. just that I don't know. I mean, I, I do, let me say one thing that I think, mm -hmm. however, people have overlooked. Uh, when you talk about electric cars, which is what he's invested in, the assumption is that electric cars are going to be energy efficient at some point. And that forgets the production of the electricity. I mean, there's a lot of loss of energy in electricity generation, storage and transmission. Mm -hmm. If you think of other alternative ways of improving fuel, and the one I'm really thinking of is, of course, self-drive cars. Mm -hmm. So imagine that all the trucks, when they get on highways, are controlled by the highway. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. driven as so efficiently that, as possible. Well, they will be eight inches away from each other. Mm -hmm. And it will be like a train, and like the mm -hmm. Peloton and the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. They will draft. So if you had to bet on driverless cars versus electric cars, you would bet I, driverless I, I would, all day. I would pretty much bet driverless. How about driverless cars. electric? No? No, because I think once you're at that point. Actually, we'll mm -hmm. talk about something else, which mm -hmm. is a broad thing that people ought to watch out. Mm -hmm. Once the energy use gets below a certain level, the advantages, uh, the disadvantages of the big sort of electric plants and the storage mm -hmm. uh, issues become smaller and smaller, I think, because the overall energy issue mm -hmm. becomes less important. So, for example, um, right now, the future of manufacturing in emerging markets is actually worse than the future of manufacturing as a whole. Mm -hmm. Because the advantage of the developing economies is cheap labor. Mm -hmm. As labor productivity grows, labor becomes less important, and labor productivity is not growing so much mm -hmm. in transportation costs going down. So that not only is the absolute demand for manufacturers, that is, is sort of manufacturing labor going down, but the advantages of producing in these low-wage countries are going down. Mm -hmm. So the more efficient the systems that operate the automobiles, and I think the, you'd think the first place they do it is China, mm -hmm. that all these traffic jam highways in China would be equipped with things that control the cars and the trucks when they get on them. Mm -hmm. Capacity would increase enormously. Mm -hmm. Accidents would go away. But also, just like the labor costs going down, the energy costs are going to go down. Mm -hmm. But the batteries still have to be there, and all those other disadvantages of electric cars mm -hmm. still have to be there. Mm -hmm. So I think that as the energy costs improve, the advantages of electric cars relative to other cars will decline. Will decline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My third reason to sell would be clear evidence or emerging evidence that the company is beginning to lose pricing power. Oh, but that, come on, that's just so obvious. Well, I mean, uh, you know. What's, I, what's the evidence they're losing pricing power? Well, I mean. Let's, I, let's talk about it. That's perfect. Do you lose pricing power if competition hasn't intensified? No, I mean. I exactly. Say, so yeah. what you're doing is you're identifying a situation An outcome where of, of competition it. has intensified. Yeah. You've looked for a symptom of it. Fine. But why not just look where competition yeah. Yeah. is likely to intensify? Yeah, I agree. And well, that's a killer. Yeah. How can you tell when competition is intensified for a company like Starbucks? Oh, how would you? People do would it? say, well, there are more Dunkin' Donuts out there now. And they no, can get no, coffee there. No, McDonald's got, uh, is into coffee, and I'm loving it. No. So how can okay, I tell? Okay, so how would you? First of all, it's a specialty. Mm -hmm. People go to Starbucks for certain reasons. Mm -hmm. You can monitor shares of you know, coffee sales of various sorts. Mm -hmm. But mostly what you want to do is look at advanced markets in which competition arrives first mm -hmm. and see what's happening to the competition that Starbucks faces in those markets mm -hmm. and try and monitor in those markets what Starbucks growth is in sales relative to the competition. Mm -hmm. And what are those markets going to be? Well, I mean, I, when you say advanced markets, are you meaning? No, San Francisco. You want to mm -hmm. look at the markets that have generated these kinds of innovations. They're, they're, core, they're core profit centers around the, around the right. country, around the world. Mm -hmm. And you know, and then at the same time, there are markets that you would expect them to penetrate. And if you see those markets occupied mm -hmm. by other people, mm -hmm. that's going to be a problem if they mm -hmm. persist in trying mm -hmm. to grow. Are you a Starbucks shareholder? No. Why not? <laughs> because I don't. <laughs> Actually, how many stocks do you have in your portfolio? I don't. Uh, 
Can I not talk about yeah, my real of portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell How you why. How many stocks should be in, a, in, in an individual investment I would portfolio? say uh, you would have 10 core positions. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be less if they're big, safe mm -hmm. companies. And then, you know, maybe 20, 20 more, 10 more that are growing. Or why are slinging. you buying the 29th? If you've got your 10 core and you've got 20 more, I, I have my explanation, I, I, which I'll share, but I want to hear yours. Why do you buy position number 30? when you know it's going to be probably a 1% one to 1%. Oh, I, a, a, I think that's wrong. Okay. B, that, all right, so. Your now, 10 core uh, positions, I assume, right. are making up like 50% of the portfolio. Yeah, or more. Or more, yeah. Okay. But let's talk about why you're diversified, mm -hmm. which is that there is one inescapable fact of investing life. And markets are not efficient in an academic sense, but only in Lake Wobegon can all the investors outperform the market. Mm -hmm. In fact, the average return to all investors has to be the average return to all assets. Mm -hmm. Minus fees. Minus fees. Mm -hmm. That means that if you're going to outperform, somebody else is going to underperform. Mm -hmm. Operationally, the way to think about that is every time you buy something thinking it's a good idea, somebody else is selling it mm -hmm. to you thinking it's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. You want to be on the right side of that transaction most of the time. What's the natural way to be on the right side of that transaction most of the time? Well, I'll give you two reasons. No, no, that's okay. Okay, well, the number one would be that you know that very well. Yes, and what leads you to know that very well? Well, because you're from that industry or you're obsessed you're with that. You're specialized. Yeah. How many investors are specialized, including the two of us? Depends what you define as specialized. You mean it has to be industry specialization? Look, if we have, all right, I'll, I'll offer you a chance to do uh, you something. You know Larry Tisch from CBS? Uh, of course, yeah. He was a masterful investor, and he said he never opened a financial statement and never ran a valuation. Uh, well, well, well. Got north of twenty percent returns because he was a master of reading. And are there behavior. a lot of Larry Tishes? I'll offer you a chance. Listen, we'll take yeah. a trip down to the onshore oil fields in the South <laughs> Texas Gulf. You can believe how much of an and, expert I'm going to be down and, there. And you two, and we'll go down there and we'll mm -hmm. bid against guys who've been in that business for twenty years. Mm -hmm. How much money are we going to make? We're going to lose. Of course, we're going to lose. Yeah. So the question is. In some degree or other, for most investors who are not an industry specialist and often a geographic specialist on top of being an industry specialist, you just don't know. Hmm. And when you just don't know, hmm. you got to diversify. So no matter how good you are at running valuation models, if you're not an industry or geographic specialist about that and, business, and other people you're not are. a valuation specialist. Yes, of course. Got it. So that's why you've got to be so diversified. So all the valuation now, work that we would do as investors should be done on top of our areas of specialization. Yes. Yeah. And I think even if you look at Buffett, you look at the four areas where he owns companies mm -hmm. and he knows the industries as well as anybody else, which is insurance, obviously, mm -hmm. consumer non-durables, mm -hmm. media and communications, and banking because he owned the Rockford Trust Why does company. he own ExxonMobil? That you look at his performance. He's not been a good oil investor. Has he been a good metals investor? Mm-hmm. No. Mm -hmm. You look at his record, he benefits from specialization too, and he's a lot smarter than the two of us. What would be your specialization, your, your, your super core competence? Well, okay, so at the, first of all, I'm not a full-time investor, okay, yeah, and yeah. that makes an enormous yeah, sure. amount of difference. Yeah. We decided at the Value Center at Columbia that specialization was so important we ought to do specializations. Mm -hmm. So what industry did I write a book about? You wrote a book about um, media, and media, oh, and media communications, communications, of course. Yeah, I'm sorry. And the other one, which we did a course in too, was retail. Mm -hmm. So we understood that we had to be. Mm -hmm. 
So you specialize. So but if you're not specialized, you got to be diversified. So if you go back, oh, you got to be diversified. Right. So you're buying number 27, 28, 29. Yeah, you don't know what number 27, 28, 29 is. If you think you know with any significant degree of confidence this which your fifth best idea is versus your 10th best idea versus your 15th So you'd have a portfolio of 30 stocks and you put 3.3% in each one of them. No, no. Although, you know, equal weight. In indices perform much better than market weight indices. Mm -hmm. No, what I'm saying is that if you're not a specialist, and you probably, everybody I think has some specialties mm -hmm. where they know mm -hmm. things and you're going to be weighted in those portfolio areas, mm -hmm. then what you're looking for is what we would think of as value advantages. Mm -hmm. Taking advantage of behavioral factors that cause systematic overvaluation mm -hmm. and systematic undervaluation. Mm -hmm taking advantage of obscure and out of uh, fashion things, mm -hmm. taking advantage of what we would think of the thing we talked about earlier with the structural changes in the investment industry. Mm -hmm. But that's not going to point you to a best idea or a second best idea. You're going to apply that as a filter when you look at ideas. Mm -hmm. But you got to understand what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So what you might suggest someone do is buy their 10 core positions around their key areas of specialization and then index on by industry or on no the no 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 market. no no I mean look think about where you don't have oh, oh, oh right over time things are going to change you know things are going to go up things are going to go down opportunities are going to shift mm -hmm. I, mean, I I actually don't believe that amateur the reason I don't want to talk about my portfolio mm -hmm. is I'm not a full-time investor yeah sure yeah and I don't believe in amateur yeah investors mm -hmm. I mean you want to do it full-time mm -hmm. and a professional investor will have I hope certain core competences, mm -hmm. a circle of competence that is not going to be everything mm -hmm. and is going to have a disciplined approach and as opportunities present themselves and it'll be more often mm -hmm. in that area of core competence, they will you know, buy slowly because you learn about stocks as much after you buy them as sure. before you buy them. Sure. So I think what we're talking about is a good process, not the idea that you look at all the stocks and they in fact magically are revealed to you mm -hmm. as from one to 30. Mm -hmm. And then you I meant only just by the size of the actual. I know, I understand that. But, but, but what I'm saying is that my sense is that if you have a good process, mm -hmm. you're going to turn over the portfolio slowly, mm -hmm. that you're not going to know one versus five for sure, but you're going to know these positions on average look better and safer mm -hmm. than a set of other positions. As they increase in price, they become less safe because you're mm -hmm. more exposed to permanent mm -hmm. impairment of capital. Mm -hmm. So I think. When you start thinking in these mechanistic ways, rather than as a continuing process of well-focused information assimilation and use, you're going to get yourself in real trouble because hmm. you're going to talk yourself into a one-stock portfolio and lots of luck with it. That is our show for today. And for the week, we are out tomorrow at our annual company meeting known as Foolpalooza. So we won't be with you tomorrow. So I hope you enjoyed these, this two-part interview with Bruce Greenwald. We will see you on Monday. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.